0: Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom.
1: It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics,
0: mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and
1: Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School and our series Wisdom of the Soul. I'd like to mention at the top of the class today that, though we've touched on it in past classes, and we'll revisit the whole idea in the future as well, that the concept of the wisdom of the soul is based on, I would say, a mystical concept that we don't find in most religions in monotheism which is essentially the abrahamic religions of judaism christianity and islam which sort of unfolded all based on uh, abraham in the ancient times in the middle east there's this whole idea of having a soul that it may be invisible we can't find where it is in the body but it is thought of as being in a way, like a spiritual organ, that you have a soul. It's indwelling, and um, it's—in Christianity, you're born with original sin. This is particularly Catholic, but I think when the Protestants, or so-called Protestants, broke away, they carried that idea of original sin— Adam and Eve and the apple and the snake and all of that. Um, Many Eastern philosophies, theologies, religions uh, suggest that there really is no soul, but it's such a fine point. I don't want to go into it right now. But in mysticism, which is found in Western, Middle Eastern, and Eastern, philosophies, and theologies. The soul is a concept that is a little more complex. The idea is the soul overshadows and extends such that human beings don't have a soul. It's more like the soul has a human being. Maybe you've heard it said, we don't have souls, we are souls, or um, we're not Human beings with a spiritual nature were spiritual beings temporarily incarnated into a physical nature. So my point in mentioning this at the top of the class today is simply that if there is an overshadowing soul, above and free of form, we ought to be able to contact it. We ought to be able to listen to the voice of the soul and access the wisdom of the soul. And if you consider times that you know things that you don't know how you know them, times where you have a deja vu, perhaps, times that you have an aha experience of a sudden burst of awareness or insight, and these thoughts arrive full-blown, this whole big picture, like a Tetris game just suddenly all falls together and you go, oh my God, I just, wow, you know what I just realized. But it was not a function of logic. It wasn't something you figured out. A led to B, led to C, led to your ultimate conclusion. It just, just arrives full blown. Consider that that could be a revelation of your own oversoul. And it really changes the way you look at things. So, in case you ever wondered, what is the wisdom of the soul exactly? Because here we are last week touching on Buddhism again today. We're going to touch on Buddhism. Buddhists, uh, that's one of those groups that denies there is such a thing as a soul. So, again, not to dwell on it, let's, let's dedicate a whole program to it. It occurred to me today to mention that, and we'll touch on it again. There is, uh, via intuition or your conscience, a uh, higher self, and we can access that with meditation, which is why we open with meditation. I also want to remind you that this program is available in its entirety as a video on YouTube. The channel is The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. We also podcast to all podcatchers and players and aggregators as Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And um, my personal website is michaelbenner.com. There's a lot there. Poke around sometime. <laughs> Check out what's behind the, behind the landing page and treat yourself to a little tour. With that, let's do an opening meditation. What do you say? Get comfortable in your chairs or your meditation pillows. Open your eyes now, wide awake. Back in the room. Take a big breath. Feeling better than before. Eyes open, wide awake, feeling better than before. Good. All right. All right. Today, we're going to follow up on last week's class on the 10 fetters. And these are hindrances. They're not like the commandments of Moses don't do this, don't do that. If you were here or listened to the replay as a podcast or YouTube video, you know that these are just a list of common bad habits, uh, typical things, mindsets, I guess, attitudes or beliefs that hinder our growth, that uh, make it more difficult for us to move forward. And so by recognizing these hindrances, these fetters, we can do a better job of managing our tendency to behave in this way. Or to hold these belief systems and then uh, get on the pony and ride, you know, we can begin to accelerate our growth. The last of the 10 was a reference to ignorance and the relationship of fear to ignorance, which is really a vicious cycle. That's what fear is. Fear has nothing to do with danger. Every dictionary I've I've ever looked in uh, looking up the word fear makes some reference to danger or a threat or a hazard of some sort, real or imagined. Nevertheless, that's the common definition of fear. It's not true. Fear is a response to confusion to ignorance, to uncertainty. And the proof of that lies in the fact that the more you understand whatever it is you're afraid of, the less fear you have, even though the danger may remain constant. This is why we do fire drills and earthquake drills. And the Boy Scout motto, Be Prepared, because the the more you know about a hazard or a danger, the less fear you suffer. And and you may mitigate the consequences of the danger. You likely are going to uh, be, be more likely to survive or minimize your injuries or whatever negative consequences occur from the danger. But the danger itself is unaffected. So fear is not really, you know, Warning, Will Robinson, warning is, (laughs) it's an alert, not to the danger itself, but to the fact that there's something here you don't know. In two areas, ignorance in the situation, so-called situational awareness, sometimes this includes a reference to operational awareness. But that's the world around you. And then, even more importantly and more basic, the lack of self awareness. Who am I really? What is my role in all of this? Why do I think, feel, and act the way I do? Why do I behave without considering the consequences of my speech and behavior? I just do it and then suffer as a result of being largely unconscious and reactive and reflexive. And then I obsess on the kickback I get from that. Whatever karma I generate as a result of that, you made me angry, you made me feel this way or that. So the whole secret is to become more aware. That's what fearlessness is to be to be more aware. And then we are are consequently less ignorant, <laughs> which is a good thing. Well, as we suggested last week but didn't have time to get to, in Buddhism there is a reference to five types of ignorance. And so because we didn't have time to get to it last week, I thought we would do it this week. Five different ways that we can be ignorant. And uh, then we'll also talk about time permitting. I'm sure we'll have time to get to the so-called precepts, which are real fundamental, real basic um, well, these are the precepts. When we get to the precepts, that's pretty much like the commandments. It's really refrain from this, refrain from that. If a Buddhist is going to be serious about quote becoming a Buddhist, they accept these five precepts. So they're real basic and real fundamental. But first, I want to talk about the five kinds of ignorance. So. Melinda has the uh, outline that I wrote up, and Mindy, if you'll come on mic and uh, begin to read these for me, I'll comment on them one at a time.
0: These are Buddhism's wrong views. The Five wrong views or ignorances are number one, belief that you are your physical body.
1: That's number one, and that's the big one. The belief that you are your physical body. And it's not just the belief that you are the physical body, period, stop, but that you are a separated sense of awareness or consciousness living in this body. Okay, I can buy that the body is uh, transitory, temporary, impermanent, that. uh, In most cases, every cell in your body gets replicated, gets replaced, you get a new body. I think there are some uh, nerve cells that don't get replaced. Melinda, this is your purview. Do you know, in fact, are there some cells that are never replaced, or is every cell in your body at some point replaced?
0: Well, the the hook on that i actually looked that up when we were talking about it before is that cells cells replace themselves but but you don't start out de novo like for instance your skin if you've got flawed wrinkled skin with problems you don't grow baby skin you grow your skin again so there's a caveat yes cells have a turnover cells die and are replicated but they're replicated in our own in their own Form more or less.
1: So an aging body will There's replicate.
0: Body. Yeah, it A- doesn't mean that you won't be able to improve your overall health, but but the idea that we get these brand new, shiny new cells, yeah, that's right. Okay, but where we are.
1: Well, that's an important point. We still are not this. There's no permanence to this body. Even in a single lifetime with a single body, it's regenerating itself and replacing itself. Are there certain nerve cells that never replace themselves, neurons? I'll
0: look that up real quickly because I want to be 100% sure. But I know, for instance, if you cut a peripheral nerve, it will regenerate. I uh, I think it's a centimeter a month. But sometimes the connections are flawed. Um, and certainly there are some some disease entities that cause abnormal like cirrhosis of the liver, perfect example. You get all this proliferation of cells, but they're nonsensical, they don't function. So, you know, it's 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 more complicated than that, but clearly most things are turning over. And I'll, I'll let me uh be a little clearer on that. Just look that up yeah,
1: Very good. Thank you for that. So, this first wrong view, you are not your body, goes beyond not being your body. You are not yourself. You are not the separated self. Now, it's difficult when you study the literature to to deal with this whole word. In Buddhism, for example, there is a reference to the no-self or the non-self, that who we really are is a no-self or a non-self. We are the all that is. We are an emanation, a manifestation of one thing. And if it were anything but Buddhism, we could use the word God, but Buddhism doesn't is not a religion. Some practice it as if it were, but it's not. And there's no reference to God whatsoever in any way, in any form in Buddhism. And yet there are many areas of Eastern and Western and Middle Eastern mysticism and Hinduism where the self is a reference to. The qualities of being in form, small s self, the separated human individual, fleshy being, and its identity of selfness, and a capital S self, which would be akin to the soul. And so, when you read Eastern philosophy, you come up against this contradiction. Well, what self are they talking about? And it merits study. With I just want to give you the understanding that at first blush, it's going to be full of contradiction, because you have to really embrace, or <laughs> maybe wrestle. With this idea of what do they mean by self? Uh, Ramana Maharshi, for example, the great mystic Ramana Maharshi talks endlessly about self, but he means a higher self, an overshadowing soul, as I discussed at the beginning of today's class. Again, the Buddhist says all sense of self either as individuated soul or as a flesh, uh, a fleshy body, a meat body is an illusion that ultimately we're all one. So again, you may see it as a contradiction. Somebody has got to get their story straight here, but I, I would suggest you approach it, uh, embrace it, the contradiction and, and, Do your best to understand this as variations on a theme. That everything is true to some extent and everything is false to some extent. And your job is to weave your own tapestry of understanding around the relative nature of these words. Words are just symbols, right? You're not going to arrive at a clear cut definition. Of these abstract concepts but the effort is worth it it's wonderful to it's necessary it's really essential to expanding your your view your to expanding your awareness or or raising your consciousness if you're going to get this elevated view we we have to address this idea but I guess the thread that runs through spiritual traditions of all uh, of all kinds and all sorts is that we're not what we appear to be. We are material beings that are animated by an energy or a spirit, and illumined by an energy or a spirit that consciousness. Awakeness, awareness, the fact that you are living, breathing, is not an epiphenomena of brain chemistry, as the Western scientists would have you believe, though they are slowly coming around, largely through the study of quantum physics. It's not not that they're all getting religion, these scientists. It's through through quantum physics and entanglement and the observer effect and the double-slit experiment that they're beginning to recognize that the one thing you cannot get behind in cause-effect, cause-effect, this effect is caused by... And that cause is an effect of a previous cause, which is an effect of some other cause. And you daisy chain your way back through these dominoes and you get to awareness and you can't get behind that. That's the one thing you can't get behind. That's the absolute. That's the ultimate. That's the Godhead. Awareness. That's who we are. That's what we are. So, awareness of what? Well, it begins with awareness that we're not separate from anything. We're not the self we appear to be. In body, in mind, in emotions. I think that ought to be obvious if you just begin to think about the environment or the ecosystem. The way you have all of these Thousands and thousands and thousands of individual species of plants and animals, and human beings are really the animal kingdom that are all unique individuals, but phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. (laughs) I remember that from school. That whole breakdown of all these. All this apparent separation and uniqueness, the diversity of life forms on this planet, all work in harmony together, such that there is no separation. We talked a few weeks ago about how with the industrialization of the last couple hundred years, the rain now contains antibiotics and antidepressants and other popular common drugs that human beings consume. Sometimes we give to our animals that get urinated and defecated out into the environment and get into the whole life support system, into the waters, the lakes, the ocean, evaporated up into the clouds and rained down, and now are part of that cycle there is no separation there's just one thing here and uh the way covid ripped through we knew it would some of us have avoided getting it but it's here it's here to stay along with a million other viruses a million may be overstated many other (laughs) many other viruses and forms of bacteria and microbial life forms, incredibly diverse panoply of living organisms, yet there is an inner reliance and an interdependence, an overriding harmony that we can't dispute, such that diversity leads to harmony, leads to unity, don't you see? It's another aspect of the Trinity. That triangle where we have this multiplicity, all this diversity moving upward toward, oh, I see the harmony and how all of this works, moving up toward the top of the pendulum, so to speak, the top of the pyramid, one thing fixed. Just like all the colors of the rainbow are expressions of white light, one light all right number two mindy
0: Uh, about the other about number one some cell lines only reproduce when they are damaged nerve cells hurt cells muscle cells so it's a it's a very complicated and fascinating subject anyone wants to go into it number two belief in duality object subject split extremes of separation with no middle way which is non-duality
1: yeah there's a lot there Let's start with the subject-object split. You see how this flows out of the first wrong view, the first ignorance. I am this separate body. Well, if I am this, then everything that is not this must be that. Right? If I'm gonna separate me, then I've separated everything else. Not only from me, but reinforced by the appearance of things from each other, such that we have this common understanding in physics that two objects that have mass, if they're solid anyway, this is not true for gases or liquids, but if they're solids, two or more objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time and so most of us live our lives as if we're a billiard ball on a pool table banging around crashing into each other you know road rage eh, eh, get out of my way and you say well you know that's a reality two cars can't occupy the same space so you got to be respectful and careful and obey the rules of the road and Yeah, but beyond that reality of physical dense a material world, and again, um, that would be true for ice, but if the ice melts and becomes water, the rules change. Now liquids can be blended, and if the liquid evaporates and becomes a gas, uh, even more so. It still has mass, right? But… They can blend together. So it's a pretty relative concept, how solid. What? What is the state? Water is a great example. Ice, liquid, gas. But this whole idea of this is not that and that is not this, and even the number one can be the whole one, all one, the only one, the unified one. Or a separative one. Well, I got this one, but I didn't get that one. And we're so used to this idea of this one and that one, it permeates even our language. Most sentences are made of a subject and an object separated by a verb. Sally held the vase. Held is the verb. Sally is the subject. The vase is the object. Right? We have objective views and subjective views. This is a split that has to be challenged as a, and, and identified as a wrong view ultimately if we're going to understand The wholeness, that's what holy means, by the way. Holy is holistic, is usually spelled without the W, but it's the same as if it were all that is one. So even our language is set up to have these separate bits acting on other separate bits, and we don't really see the flow or the unity Of things. I heard someone explain how other cultures have language, and I think this is true of Esperanto, which is sort of an invented language. Let's take uh, a sentence like Bill skied down the mountain. You have Bill dressed up for winter, wearing skis, and moving down a mountain. So Bill is on the mountain. Bill is not the mountain. The mountain is not Bill. The act of skiing is the verb, the action. But it doesn't really tell us about how it feels to ski down a mountain. Or the freshness of the cold wind in your face, or the snow, or the ice, or the sound. All of that is missing, and we don't have a way with our languages of putting that together in a harmonious way so that we can express the whiteness, the freshness, the wishness of skiing down the mountain. You see, it's just this person on skis going down a mountain. This is a challenge to a creative writer. One of the reasons we love film and video And it's because our language, again, breaks things up into bits and pieces. That's just the beginning of the subject object split. Just the idea that I am not you, you are not me, uh, we disagree. And so the emphasis is immediately on the conflict or the contradiction rather than some element of harmony. Oh, we disagree? Oh, far out. Tell me all about how you see this, because my view is obviously uh, narrow and selective, and, oh, I would be fascinated in learning about your variation on that theme. What do you see about this that's different? And instead, we're like, what do you mean? Well, you're wrong, (laughs) because I know I'm right, and all this immediate conflict comes out of it. There's a lot more, but in Buddhism, there's a concept called the middle way that takes us from duality, the duality of this or that, of either or, of all or nothing, to non-duality. And that's a term I'd like you to consider for further study. Google that. Watch some videos, read some articles on non-duality because it tends to integrate this kind of philosophy with some really hard science about the wholeness of systems and the harmony of systems that leads to an ultimate sense of unity. And man, that can do, it can have an enormous benefit when it comes to expanding your, uh, your intelligence and your awareness. What's number three, Mindy?
0: Attachment to absolute views.
1: This is, again, do you see how this flows? See how these five ignorances are also one thing, just different points of views? Absolutism is a pox on humanity. It's a total curse. This has to be absolutely right, absolutely wrong. There's no middle ground. I'm not going to concede your point. You're absolutely wrong. Um, It's reactionary. It's reflexive. It is the mindset of a person with a high level of stress and anxiety. It is fear-based. There are such things as absolutes. There can be absolute truth. We discussed this at length in previous classes, and we won't avoid it. We'll talk about it some more. But there is also, in the two-truth doctrine, beyond the existence of some absolutes, a huge body of relative truth or subjective truth that we need to acknowledge. How big is big? How fast is fast? Why is your big toe so much smaller than a small car? You see, it's just all relative. Okay, number four, Mindy.
0: Perverted views, rejection of karma, impermanence, reincarnation.
1: These three principles, karma, uh, reincarnation, and impermanence, are in many ways, a cornerstone, like the Four Noble Truths, a cornerstone of Buddhism. So if you fail to understand or accept or even consider the, the working, again, these are not three separate things. These are part of one process, karma, reincarnation, impermanence. These are three ways of describing one thing, and they merit your study. The impermanence should be self-evident. Nothing lasts. Everything dies. Rusts, corrodes, rots. Nothing lasts. Everything about the physical world is impermanent. The karma and the reincarnation flow. They follow on that and are subjects that we can cover in the future. It's interesting how the concept of karma has permeated the West. It's People talk about it all the time, well, that's bad karma. It's sort of uh, increasingly recognized as the same thing that uh, uh, Christ said about reaping what you sow, that's what karma is. There are consequences uh, for not only what we do, But for what we think, or the uh, thoughts or seeds, and the feelings behind them, there's karma for all of that, your intention. Karma begins with intention. And then reincarnation, or what's often called transmigration. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in the future. But those those three concepts are real fundamental to, to Buddhism and um are we up to number five
0: attachment to superstition orthodoxy traditions customs and rituals
1: and this was one of the fetters we talked about last week attachment particularly to customs and ritual and ceremony and um, the point here uh, again is if you were aware of what you were doing It wouldn't be so bad. But then it begs the question, what makes it a ceremony? Why is it a ritual? How much of this is superstition that you don't really understand and you don't know why you're doing it? It's authoritarian in nature, or it certainly tends to be. And the larger point, maybe the biggest point here, is it tends to become rote, which is devoid of conscious awareness. You just do it because you're told to do it, and that's how people pray. There was a a Catholic nun, a mystic, St. Teresa of Avila, in the Renaissance era, who was uh, All but excommunicated from the church, the Inquisition took serious issue with her suggestion that when we pray, we do it silently and pay attention to the meaning of the words. The church in Rome thought that that was putting too much responsibility on the individual. The church wanted you to pray by rote and just not even think about what you were doing, just say it over and over and over again, turn you into a robot or a machine of some sort. Well, what's the point if you're not aware of the meaning? And if you think of yourself as a Christian, for example, the Lord's Prayer, um, go over it line by line and ask yourself, I've said this all my life. Do I have any idea what it means? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, well, that's pretty basic. That's God in heaven. Your name is hallowed. It's revered. You're awesome. You're beyond understanding. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. What does that mean? What means Jesus is coming back? Really? Are you sure? Isn't it a little deeper than that? and I could go on. Look at these prayers, take them apart, ask yourself any ritual, any ceremony, you're gonna participate, do it with expanded awareness, with consciousness. Be mindful about it, just like when you eat. I know we love to be social when we eat and, and talk and chit chat, but if you ever have an opportunity to eat alone, do it mindfully. Watch yourself eating the food, experience fully the flavor, the texture of the food. Consider where it came from, what it took to get it to your plate, the nutrition behind it, the sunlight, the minerals in the soil. It's so full of the whole universe that to just gulp it down seems like a horrible waste. So, And so too with mindful walking and more on mindfulness in the future, but, uh, I don't really need to comment on the precepts. And Melinda, if you would just read those straight through, again, these are the these are the basic precepts of Buddhism. What not to do? Each each of these begins with refrain from, refrain from. Basically, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Just read them through, if you would, Melinda.
0: Number one is refrain from taking life, not killing any sentient being. Number two, refrain from taking what is not given or stealing. Number three, refrain from excessive sensual or sensory pleasure. Number four, refrain from wrong speech, cheating, lies, slander, partial truth, and lies of omission. Number five, refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind.
1: There you go. The two that are tough for me in my life has been um, the eating of meat, which I still can't put down. I'm much better than I used to be at minimizing the amount of meat that I eat. But um, well anything I say further is gonna sound like excuses and I don't want to make excuses. That's I I include meat in my diet. So I would not be a good Buddhist in that sense. And the intoxicants, a glass of wine or a beer once in a while, uh, I'm frankly okay with that. And uh, I've smoked a lot of weed in my life and done psychedelics, and I'd be a hypocrite to to say that in that area I'd be a good Buddhist. Um, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. And the thing about the sensory and sensual pleasure we talked about last week, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy pleasure, the pleasure of touch, um, holding hands, massage, making love, the pleasure of listening to music, of eating good food, the pleasure of sleeping in a soft bed. You can do all of that, just don't see it as an end unto itself. You're not going to get liberated from samsara, from the endless cycle of birth and death by pursuing pleasure. That is a that is a wrong view. Buddha tried that, it didn't work. <laughs> he tried abstinence and not eating and sleeping on the bed of nails and even today there are five more precepts for nuns and monks and one of them is not sleeping in a high bed and by that they mean a comfortable bed you have to sleep on the floor on a mat Um, otherwise you're tempted to pursue comfort as if that's what will get you to heaven you see it's replicating paradise on earth so enjoy yourself, enjoy pleasure. Just don't pursue it to an excess, as if that's going to make you happy. It will. It will not. It's pleasure is pleasure, but it doesn't lead to the ultimate joy and fulfillment and peace and bliss and ecstasy of the Nirvana that we would like to have by continuing to expand our awareness and free ourselves from suffering. So uh, that's as much as I'll say about
0: the precepts.